0: It is so important with every character that we introduce into our stories, whether we are writing multi POV with just two characters or three characters or six characters, every one of those characters needs to have a story arc, they need to have misbeliefs, they need to have insecurities and fears that all inform the story.
1: Welcome to The First Five Chapters. I am Luke Kerr, a writer and a podcaster who's forging these two passions into this novel book review podcast. Join me as I adventure into the realms and imaginations of today's authors. You never know who we'll meet or what we'll learn along the way. And when we're done, it's up to you whether or not to read beyond The First Five Chapters. Joining me today is Bianca Murray the best-selling author who, in addition to writing novels, teaching creative writing, she co-hosts my all-time favorite writing craft podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. Her previous books include Hum If You Don't Know the Words and If You Want to Make God Laugh, as well as the Audible Original The Prynne Viper. Her latest book is about a sisterhood of witches called Moonshine Manor. I find it to be a magical dash of the golden girls with a twist of steel magnolias and a sprinkle of sex outside the city? <laughs> Making it the perfect way to kick off October, a most spectacular month. Bianca, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Luke, thanks so much for having me. And this is the first time that I've heard Steel Magnolias thrown in there, and I absolutely love it. I don't know why I didn't think of that either.
1: Uh, When I started reading the book, and even before I received the book, and I was reading the, the description on back when I ordered it on Amazon, I was like, This gives me Steel Magnolias vibes because of all the interpersonal dynamics. And so I was like, I can't wait to get my hands on it. I did, and it met my expectations. This podcast is the first five chapters. When we do book reviews, we try focusing on whether or not an author has hooked us to read beyond the first five chapters and what they did really well to do so. So uh, kicking things off, what for you is most important in hooking a reader either in the first chapter or somewhere along the line in the first five chapters?
0: So for me the most important thing are planting curiosity seeds. You want to paint a vivid enough picture for your reader that they know what's going on. They need to be able to imagine the setting. They need to imagine in some of what's unfolding but they need to be curious. There needs to be things that are happening that they don't understand quite yet and that they are like, okay, what's happening here? I'm going to keep reading to try and figure out exactly what's happening. And then, of course, it helps to have some kind of sense of urgency or a ticking clock, you know, something where it feels like something's happening rather fast or something has to be done really quickly. Um, And I think if you manage to do that and create some tension, I think you've Got a good opening chapter.
1: And that right there, listeners, is why I enjoy. Her podcast so much because she succinctly nails it on the head every single time. I love that response. Uh, one of the things that I have learned over the years from your podcast was not only to appreciate the fact that you, Carly, and Cece recommend doing chapter subtitle or titles and all of those good things, but your ongoing debate about prologue versus no prologue. And so I was I was looking forward to seeing whether or not you had. Sn- Snuck one in on this um, in this book, and yeah. <laughs> you, you don't technically have a prologue, but you do have a de- many descriptions of each of the witches in the sisterhood. So, what made you decide to go with that as sort of a twist on a prologue, without it actually being a prologue?
0: Yeah, you know, the the challenge with writing a book with such a large ensemble cast, and what we have here, Luke, is we have six uh, octogenarian witches, we have a 15-year-old TikToker called Persephone, there are townsmen, there's a lot happening. Now, when you're writing this kind of book, if you begin just with the action, um, and in this book, the action comes probably at about chapter 12 or 13, when the townsmen arrive to um, knock down the witch's manor and distillery. Now, the problem with that is, had I begun there, the reader wouldn't necessarily care that their distillery was about to be knocked down, because, okay, yes, they're these older women and they are being threatened, but so what? You know, that is a question we always should be asking ourselves as we write. So what? Why does this matter? And for me, I didn't want to begin there because I wanted the reader to have a firm understanding of who these witches were, why they should care about them, what these women are up against, and kind of get a sense of their diminishing powers because they are now so much older and they aren't able to fight back the way they would have sort of 50 years ago. And so that was a challenge that um, I was faced with in these opening pages. And so I decided to begin with character so that the reader could get an understanding of each of these witches so that they could get curiosity seeds about the witch who is missing where is she why is she missing why is she going to be the one who's likely to save them why may she not come home like what is what is all of that happening there and to get a sense of the dynamic between the witches so you know you could say almost the first 12 chapters was like a very extended (coughs) prologue setting us up for the action to follow um but that that felt more important to me than just beginning with the action.
1: Well, as you've pointed out on your own podcast, as long as you break the rules well, it's okay to break them. So maybe 12 chapters as a prologue is the perfect way to break a prologue rule. I don't know. But I
0: think that you did it well. Thank you. Thank you. And, and you know, just on that, we always say... It's not that we are completely anti-prologue. We are anti-bad prologues. We do not like prologues that are tacked on after the fact as a band-aid to fix first and second chapters that are not doing the heavy lifting, that are not doing the work they should do. So if you've got really good opening chapters... And you've decided to use a prologue to flash forward to something that's happening or flash back to something that happened or to elevate the work even further, then that's a great prologue. But when many writers look at the opening chapters and go, oh, well, this isn't actually very interesting or this isn't very compelling. So I'm going to tack on this prologue to make it more interesting. And that's when we have a problem with the prologues. What I think that
1: you did so wonderfully in the first chapter is you set it up with the description of the sisterhood of witches. And then in the first chapter, you had Ursula reinforce what the reader had already done by having her read the tarot cards and combining each of the tarot cards with one of the sisterhood who we were going to meet in later chapters. I thought that that was a really succinct and well-crafted way to reinforce what we had, but also tease the characters that were going to be appearing in the later chapters. Because the way you've set this up is you have each of the initial chapters sort of focusing on the viewpoint of a single witch. And so by time we got to the end of chapter one, I already had an idea of who these witches were beyond... Your initial description prior to the start of the book. And I also, you had also instilled in me this dread and foreboding as Ursula was running through the manor. And I was like, what inspired you to use tarot cards as the way to slip in more details for each of the witches?
0: thank you firstly for that compliment and secondly this isn't even something i can take credit for so here's the thing i was as i was writing i was submitting to cc um and i was submitting she in turn there was an intern at ps literary who you know they get editorial interns to read the work and to be giving you critique and when i originally wrote This first chapter, I did have the tarot cards, but more to give foreboding in terms of the impending threat. So to know that there was this threat coming for the witches, something bad was about to happen, and you would say, "Uh Uh-oh, what's happening here? And then when you know the intern read the work, it was the intern who said to me, Here's the thing: all of these chapters with the witches feel very separate. We see each of them on their own dealing with their own issues, but we don't get a sense of how they all fit into the sisterhood. And as soon as I heard that critique, I was like, that is exactly spot on. That is 100% right. And so I went back and reworked the tarot readings so that each card, each threat, related to one of the other witches. Um, And even, you know, in chapter two with Jezebel, she's trying to get rid of a one-night stand she had from the night before. And initially, that was just her, the one-night stand. And then based on that feedback, I went back and had Jezebel thinking about a brunch she was going to make for the witches and where she should have it. And she can't do it here because of Ursula's you know um, allergies and she can't make this because this person doesn't like it. So this is why I'm always saying to the listeners on the podcast, get beta readers, get a writing group, get people to read and critique your work because they will suggest things you didn't think about. They will elevate the work. And that's exactly what happened in this instance.
1: Ruby does not, Live at the manor presently, but she is a huge influence in terms of the tension that you created and the momentum that you are building within the first five chapters. Ursula needs her forgiveness. Jezebel wants to feel young and badass again. Ivy's dreading the conflict that Ruby's return will bring, and Tabitha is holding a grudge. When crafting these characters, what did you do to make sure that all of them had something to lose or gain by Ruby's return? Because it would have been very easy for some of them to possibly have outsized stakes and the other ones to have lesser stakes.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent question. No one's asked me that yet, Luke, and I love that question. So. It is so important with every character that we introduce into our stories, whether we are writing multi POV with just two characters or three characters or six characters, Every one of those characters needs to have a story arc. They need to have misbeliefs. They need to have insecurities and fears that all inform the story. And you know, I've watched things like Fraser, and I was always so fascinated by somebody how a character like Maris. We never saw Maris. This I was love Niles. That. I know Niles's, you know, wife, and yet she was like Mufasa. Every time someone mentioned Meris, it was like, "Ooh, Meris," and yet we never saw her, and there was a reason for that because she was so much larger than life by not being on screen. And so I was playing around with that, and I was going. What would be interesting if Ruby weren't there at the beginning of the story? If they were waiting for Ruby, because there's something to be said for the people we wait for, because, you know, somebody in their absence can lo- loom so much larger than they can by being there. And so it was important that each of the witches felt strongly about Ruby's return, that her return was going to affect each of them in a very particular way, as well as affect the sisterhood as a whole. And that was something, again, that didn't come in the first draft, didn't come in the second draft. It was something that I had to really work with. Um, the, The beginning was something that I rewrote the most to really nail those aspects of the story.
1: I think that you did it well because by the end of chapter 5 um when we've only we've seen all but one of the witches by the end of chapter 5 I was pretty much invested in each of them for their own reasons and it's not very often that you'll read a book and you'll be invested in the whole cast usually for me as a reader I will connect with maybe one possibly two but to do it with all of them, I thought was really well done.
0: Yeah, th- thank you for that. That's, that's a huge compliment. And, you know, when when you want your readers to connect with your characters, vulner- vulnerability is the most important thing. You know, you don't have to make a character likable. They can do bad things. They can behave in terrible ways. But if you give us a glimpse into what makes them so desperately human or What makes them so vulnerable? Give us something of that to connect with. And that's what I was hoping to do, you know, with each of the witches, because which of us have ever gone through a moment where we haven't felt intense guilt about something we've done or, you know, wished that we could be younger and kind of be our bad selves again or you know which of us haven't felt at some point that we are waiting for an apology from someone who has wronged us and you know so these are all things that I hope to very relatable to the human experience
1: let's talk about Jezebel for a moment because she gives me Blanche Devereaux, a little bit of Samantha Jones vibes, but as a witch. But like them, she's an empowered woman who loves sex, and they go, she goes through her share of men. But what made me connect to her as a character was the insecurities about her feelings for Artemis, the 59-year-old sustainable agricultural consultant. Now, I love myself some good romantic subplot. And you really hooked me with that. So what can you tease about Jezebel and Artemis that isn't in the first five chapters to get listeners to keep turning pages?
0: Yeah, because, you know, if you look at a character like Jezebel, who does love sex and who has many sexual partners, you know, you, you kind of go, okay, well, it's great to enjoy sex, but why don't you have one sexual partner who you're having a lot of sex with or maybe, you know, um, multiple, um, longer term relationships. And the interesting thing about Jezebel is that she speaks about having many partners over the course of a short time and that many of them do not remember her. Now, here is the thing with Jezebel is her magical power is she's a seductress. And so there comes this insecurity in terms of going, does someone like me or love me for me or is what they're attracted to, this power that I have. And if that's an insecurity she has, then how does that speak to someone who she thinks she might love but can't trust that they will love her in return? And that is where she thinks about Artemis but is not allowing herself to fall for Artemis because, of course, she could be desperately hurt if all he cares about is that kind of attraction. As a long-time
1: listener of your podcast, I have to confess that you have cost my pocketbook more than a few dollars because of various programs and services that I have signed up for because you recommend such good tools. Uh, one of those is Scrivener, which I had never written um, with prior to hearing about it on your podcast. Before that, the novel that I finished and I'm currently querying for, it was all done in word, and it was this big project. And so... I imagine myself, I don't know what you wrote this in, but if you wrote it in Scrivener, what I was imagining as I was reading it was you were basically writing the title cards with the character chapters and then moving them around to see how they uh, fit best in terms of which should come first in your chapter orders. And the reason why I bring that up is because the first four chapters are each individually about a specific witch and i was expecting chapter 5 to be to go to queenie but it wasn't we cut to ursula for a second and so then i noticed chapter 6 was about queenie and i was like okay i've got to keep reading i've got to get to chapter 6 because i need to know more about queenie and this was where i felt you did what you talked about earlier bringing everything together and making them seem like a a full unit because They did seem a little bit separate at first in their individual chapters, the way you had it structured. And then Queenie's chapter came and she gives the bigger um, viewpoint. She has the interpersonal dynamics. She sort of seems to be the glue that holds the manor together, but she has her own secrets with the absolute final demand, which I'm assuming is the mortgage um, demand. When you were writing this, was there a version of the manuscript where Queenie was chapter one? And one of the other chapters, did and did you play around with the order of how the witches appear?
0: Yes, you're imagining it exactly right. And this is why a tool like Scrivener is so useful, because when you write in word You know, it doesn't allow the manuscript to be a puzzle, which is what stories should always be. Stories are a puzzle, and it's our job as writers to figure out how the pieces fit together best to show whatever picture we're trying to convey. And we're not always going to get that right in in a first draft. So in the first draft, it was actually consecutively uh, Ursula for probably the first four chapters. Oh, wow. As it plays out, Ursula wakes up. She sees that the sky is dark and brooding and the forest is disquieted and things don't feel right. And then she does her, um, terror reading and then she's alarmed and then she goes downstairs and she does her tea leaf reading and she's alarmed and she burns her breast and the strange man is in the house and all of that plays out. And then I went to each of the other witches. And I realized, no, you can't spend too much time with just Ursula in the beginning, because here's the thing, when you do multi-POV, the reader tends to become fixated on the character that they spend the most time with in the beginning. And I wanted the reader to get a sense from very early on that this was an ensemble cast and that you were going to see all the witches in all of their glory. And so that chapter, I started chopping it up and I started putting it in into different sort of areas within Scrivener, which it allows you to do that. You can move things around quite easily. And then they got chopped up even more. And things that came later were moved around to the beginning as I figured out how to handle this monstrous puzzle piece. When
1: I was done with chapter six, something that you mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast about threading all the Easter eggs, keeping the tension and making sure that you leave enough for the reader to keep on turning pages. I love that you slipped in the two break-ins. I thought that that was a nice little touch because when I was reading the chapters, I was, I read them before I started making my notes. And then I was like, where's this little Easter egg about the break-ins? I know it's here. I have to go back in and find it because one of the things about this podcast is when you're reviewing the first five chapters, Sometimes not everything that's described on the back of a book um, that is supposed to hook you to read the book is in those chapters. And so I thought that you're mentioning of the break ins, the greatest magical heist in history that the sisterhood had pulled off were wonderful Easter eggs that even though I don't know who this man is that is bent on getting uh, avenging the his family of the theft. You set it up so that it tied into the back of the book, and I wanted to keep on reading. Now, since he's not technically in the first five chapters, is there anything that you can tease about his revenge revenge storyline?
0: Yeah. And just, just on that, Luke, I think it was Anton Chekhov that said, if you are going to fire a pistol in the second act, make sure the reader sees it hung up on the wall or on a table in the first act. So... This is our job again to leave these these bread trail clues so that, you know, there's something in passing. Jezebel says she needs to get this man out of the house before Queenie sees him because Queenie's been giving her a hard time about all these randos she's been bringing home because of these two break ins that they've had. So, and that's all that said. So, you don't understand how that pertains to the rest of the story. You just go, you file that away and you go, ooh, interesting. Somebody has broken. Into their house, why is someone breaking into their house? And then only much later do you start to get a sense of who this person is who has perhaps been breaking into the house? I think it's only revealed much, much later, but but you know, there are theories about it. The witches are like, could it be this one? Could it be this one? Why is someone breaking in? They haven't actually stolen anything. So, what's the point of them doing that? And again, this isn't something that comes in the first draft. So What I say to writers is once you get to the point where you realize that there needs to be a character who has been breaking in searching for something, just go back, plant those seeds, just a sentence or two, leave those Easter eggs so that when you get to that big reveal, the reader without even realizing it has been waiting for it. And they let out the slight exhalation. They're like, ah, okay, here it is. I've actually been waiting for this without even realizing it.
1: Another character um, who I had hoped to see in the first five chapters but wasn't there was Persephone. The back cover describes her as a young, feisty TikToker eager to smash smash the patriarchy. I'm assuming that she comes to live with the witches when Ruby arrives, but you know sometimes what they say about uh, assuming things. So I don't want to take it for granted, but I'm like, story-wise... It would not surprise me if Ruby showed up with Persephone. What can you tell us about this character um, and what we have to look
0: forward to? Right. So Persephone is delightful. The readers have absolutely loved her. And here's the thing. I couldn't introduce her too early because, again, she's a, an and she's not a peripheral character, she's a very important character, but she doesn't live in the manor. And so I needed to set the manor up as a character, I needed to set the sisterhood up as a character, I needed to set each of the characters up as their own character. And then once the threat arrives, that is actually when Persephone arrives. So she doesn't arrive with Ruby, she arrives before. Um, when these townsmen come to break down, you know, this house and she arrives kind of to rescue the witches and she becomes part of setting Ruby up because here's the thing, Luke, all of these witches, they know where Ruby is. They they? know. Okay. That each of the witches know where Ruby is, they know why she stayed away. Well, not a hundred percent. They they have suspicions about that, but they know what happened to make Ruby leave. Yeah. And but it's something they don't talk about. You know, it's like so many things in dysfunctional family units. Yep. There'll be these things that everybody's aware of, but nobody wants to talk uh, about it until an external person comes along and starts asking questions. And of course. Persephone is that catalyst. She's like, "Who is this person? Why is she gone? What's happened?" Etc. Um, and so she serves so many story um, purposes that by the time she arrives and she kind of drives the second act, we are ready for her.
1: I cannot wait to meet her. Your description of her on the back and your description of her right now just like makes me want to dive back in because I try not to read beyond the first five chapters for book reviews and discussions on this podcast just because that's the premise of the podcast. But I can't wait to meet her. I do want to just circle back for one second to a quote that really stuck out to me Um, and In Ivy's chapter, when she is dreading Ruby's return, when you wrote, worry is like a rocking chair, it gives you something to do but doesn't get you anywhere, that hit home so much for me because I'm an overthinker and I will think of everything from every single possible angle. And then I'm sitting there and I'm like, Ivy. I had an aha moment. I'm like, I feel like I'm sitting on Oprah's couch, and Bianca just like gave me a rocking chair aha moment. So I wanted to thank you for that because it was the best metaphor that I've seen to deal with my overthinking. So thank you.
0: Yeah, you you're welcome, and that's something that I've applied to my own life because I myself am a wake up at two a.m. worrying about something for ages, and it feels like time spent constructively, but it really hasn't gotten me anywhere because thinking about something in no way fixes it. Lying awake and worrying about it in no way fixes it. So that was definitely for the, for the overthinkers out there.
1: For those who, um, people who may not have ever listened to your podcast, could you tell the listener briefly what you try to do with your podcast?
0: Yes, absolutely. So I have been a creative writing instructor for many years and I love teaching. I love seeing those aha moments that my students have when they finally grasp showing versus telling or how to introduce backstory in a flashback versus exposition. And then COVID hit and I wasn't able to be in class with my students, but I was still getting a ton of questions from people on social media asking me for writing advice, which I always dispensed. I'm always happy to to share wisdom um, and and to help people out. But I felt myself repeating the same things over and over, which was frustrating. And then I said to myself, okay, how can I give advice but reach more people and I thought okay let me try this podcasting thing um and I started it and I remember when I got a hundred downloads I was so excited I was like there are a hundred people out there listening to this podcast and then I got Carly and Cece on who were so generous with their time because remember none of us get paid for this whatever uh income we bring in just covers the expense of the podcast. So the time we take on it is time that we could be doing other things and getting paid for them, but we don't. So it is a labor of love. And now we've just recently hit a million downloads. Congratulations. Thank you. That that felt huge, like a huge moment. And for me, Luke, nothing makes me happier than hearing from people who have listened to the podcast, who've revised their query letters and opening pages based on our feedback, based on our author interviews, and then managed to land an agent because of it. I just recently at East City Bookshop in Washington, DC, I did an event for the Witches of Moonshine Manor, and somebody from the podcast came there to meet me and told me that two days before they had signed with an agent, thanks to you know, the work they had put in based on the podcast. And that just makes me so happy.
1: That in of itself is its own kind of magic because for me as a writer, aspiring to be a published author, like listening to your podcast, getting the information that all three of you provide also being a little bit petrified. If I were to submit and have CC or Carly, uh, review my query letter, I, I would admit to be nervous about that because they are so articulate and they are so kind, but boy, they can cut to the meat of the issue. And it's wonderful to listen to because you're like, this is the analysis I need, but it's also a little bit daunting. So all of those guests who come on, um, our authors who they do the live critiques. I'm always sitting there and I'm thinking, boy, those are some brave people, but CC and Carly are always so gracious in their critiques, even when it's maybe not the easiest things, or if there's more um, adjustments that the author needs to do, but you have f- created a wonderful resource and podcast and all three of you deserve credit for that.
0: Thank you, Luke. Thank you. That means a lot to me. And you know, here's the thing. we, Everyone in their life will have friends and family who's going to read their work and say lovely, wonderful things. And that's what our friends and family are for. They are our cheerleaders. But none of those lovely things that they're saying is going to make us a better writer and it's not going to help us get an agent. And the thing that breaks my heart the most is frustration on the writer's part. When a writer says to me, you <laughs> what am I doing wrong? I'm just being rejected and I can't understand what I'm doing wrong and it's so frustrating. And so we come from a place of trying to help them see where they're going wrong, where they can't see it themselves. And you know, we are so invested in them succeeding that sometimes tough love is required to, to help them have that breakthrough. And like you say, we do try really hard to be kind, but we also, we only have 10 minutes per query and we are desperate to help our listeners. And, you know, if, if we can give them some truths that maybe are sting a little bit when they first hear them, but maybe down the line help them, then, you know, then that's part of the process. And if it's going to get them results, then that makes us so happy.
1: Um, Before we wrap things up, I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about, and forgive me because I suspect that I'm going to mispronounce this, the Eunice Nagoto Own Voices initiative that you um, run. I know that it's very close to your heart, and I know that periodically on your podcast you do fundraisers. So share with the listeners a little bit about that if you would, please.
0: Yeah, so I had a childhood caregiver called Eunice Ngogodo in South Africa. She helped raise me. She, you know, she was a black woman who worked for my family, and I credit her with so much of who I am today. My outlook on life today would not be the same without the love that I had for her and that she had for me. And she's still alive. She just turned 99. I was in South Africa in May, just after her birthday to see her. And I wanted to pay tribute to her in some way so that her legacy would live on. And, you know, my first two novels dealt with racism in South Africa, with apartheid South Africa. um, And I you know, I wrote from Black characters' perspectives because I wanted to look at how racism really affects everyone. And uh, after that, I had conversations with Black authors in South Africa who didn't have a problem with me at all writing from these perspectives because they said I did it humbly and respectfully and I did them justice. But they were just frustrated that they aren't being published internationally, just in South Africa, whereas white storytellers like me are being published internationally. And so I decided I didn't want to be a part of the problem anymore. I wanted to be a part of the solution. And so through the um, Own Voices initiative, you know, we do Workshops in high schools in South Africa, teaching young people how to write. We provide mentorships. We've provided residencies so that women, black women could take time off of their jobs to sit somewhere and have three months worth of dedicated writing time. And we now recently put a helped put a young woman into an MFA program at Cape Town University, which she would never have been able to afford. And she is an excellent award winning writer. But you know, there are these barriers to entry. And so that's now what I've, you know, with the help of the podcast listeners and so many other people, that's what we're trying to do.
1: This episode is going to go live at the beginning of October. Where can people find um, the where you're going to be appearing next for book signings or readings in the month of October?
0: Right. So if they can look at my website, com, there is an upcoming events page, um, most of my US tours stop in September. Um, I'm doing a whole bunch of uh, Ontario events in October. And then in November, I'm going to be in Boston. Uh, well, an hour outside of Boston for a library uh, foundation fundraiser. But at any time, if they want to see what I'm up to, whether it's online events or in-person events, just check my website.
1: Thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a true honor to have you on the podcast and to discuss the first five chapters of The Witches of Moonshine Manor. You can find it at all your favorite bookstores or online. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Luke. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Enjoy this episode or the show? Support us by writing a review on iTunes and Spotify. Follow us on social media by checking out the profiles linked in every episode. And finally, join the First Five Chapters Facebook group to share your passion for books, writing, and to make topic suggestions for future episodes. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, it's up to you whether or not to read beyond the first five chapters.